Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. This lesson was previously recorded by Michelle in front of a live audience. Well, in our last lesson, we learned a little bit about the Gnostics, who were some of the false teachers trying to influence the church at Colossae. If you had to sum up the deceit in their teaching, Gnostics disputed who Christ really is. They disputed what he accomplished on the cross, and they also argued about how our lives should be lived as a result of that. Paul declared that Jesus is not only the creator, but also the sustainer of all things, and that all of God's fullness dwells in him. You know, one of Christ's names revealed in the Old Testament is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the Christian belief is that God took on human flesh, and he came to dwell with us in the person of Jesus in order to provide a way for mankind to be saved from the penalty of sin. Through Christ's sacrifice, we have peace with God, and we've been set free to live a life transformed and godly as a result. Christ followers know that God is neither distant nor uninvolved in the affairs of men, as the Gnostics thought, because God himself has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. To understand what Christ has done for us, you might find it helpful to think of it this way. Imagine that you have broken the law, and having been arrested, you now stand in chains before the judge who must sentence you. The evidence is stacked up against you, and because the judge is honorable and just, he has no alternative but to declare that you are guilty. But then imagine, as the prison guards are just about to lead you away, in response to your cry for mercy, the judge suddenly motions for them to stop. He then stands up, takes off his official robes, and comes down to take your position in the dock. The judge is honorable and just. You deserve punishment, but because he's also loving, he is willing to take your place in order for you to go free. Now, I know that would never happen in life, but it is exactly what has happened in the spiritual realm because God is just. The penalty for sin must be paid, but he sent his own son so that we might go free, thus proving that there really are no limits to his love. And as we understand that, we will then begin to live different lives out of gratitude. It was out of gratitude for what the Lord had done for him that Paul was willing to endure all things for the sake of the gospel and for the spiritual growth of others. He confirms in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord. God's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Spreading the good news about Christ across the world had landed Paul in prison, but he saw that suffering as being for the Colossians and the people like them, so that they would not only come to know Christ, but also so that they would be built up in their relationship with the Lord through the example of Paul's own life. He saw his suffering as the servant of Christ, as really being a privilege rather than a punishment, because he knew that he was sharing in the continuing work of Christ as the church was extended and believers were encouraged in the faith. Paul declared that God himself had commissioned him to preach the word of God in its fullness to others. And he speaks of the message he'd been given as being, and I quote him, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Now, I think in calling his message a mystery, Paul is trying to get his listeners' attention because, remember, the the Gnostics were always talking about mysterious pieces of knowledge that few people found. So it's almost as if Paul is saying, you want a mystery? God has one, and he's willing to share it with all of you. Not only was God willing to share the secret with the Jews, but he was willing to share it with the Gentiles as well. And so what was the secret? It is that Christ in us is our hope of glory. Throughout history, there have been religions that have taught that we can earn ourselves a place with God in glory through what we do. But these systems of belief could never give a person the power to live the way that God desires. But Christianity is different. For Christ not only gives us the desire to change, he actually provides the power for us to do so because he has promised to indwell us. You see, it is Christ in me that gives me the hope of glory. In verse 28 to 29, Paul states that he not only taught dependence on Christ through what he said, he also modeled it in the way he lived. His main goal was to help others mature in their relationship with Jesus, and he was energetically struggling towards that outcome with every bit of strength that Christ had given to him. However, he did want them to understand just how difficult that was. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. 
Paul tells the Colossians that he is contending or struggling for them and for the believers in nearby Laodicea, which was another city in their valley. And I find it remarkable that Paul was going through a physical and spiritual struggle for these people he'd never met, yet whom he loved nonetheless because of Jesus. We cannot underestimate Paul's sufferings, though, because when he says that he wants them to know how hard he was contending or struggling for them, the Greek word Paul uses for struggle is agon, from which we get the English word agony. So how might Paul have agonized over them? Well, he was certainly struggling for them in prayer, and he was also wrestling with the false doctrine they were hearing so as to equip them with reliable teaching. But in addition to that, he was surely struggling against the attacks of the evil one, Satan, who was doing his best to tempt and discourage Paul. Paul's aim was for these believers to have all the marks of a faithful church. And when he says that he wanted them to be encouraged in heart, he's really saying that he wanted them to be people of courage who would be able to meet difficult circumstances with confidence. He wanted them to be united in love because without Love for God and love for each other, there is no real church. Because Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, that by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Another mark of God's people is that they have a unique understanding of God and of Christ. And this is because the Holy Spirit of truth has been given to them to guide them, just as Christ promised in John 16, verse 13. You see, Paul's aim was to help believers everywhere have the full riches of complete understanding about Christ, because he knew that it is in Christ alone that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And I think in saying this, Paul was directly confronting the Gnostics, who, for all their intellectual pride, were looking for wisdom in all the wrong places. Though Paul had never met the Colossians, he was concerned for them that no one deceived them by sound by fine-sounding arguments. And though he was not with them physically, he was with them in spirit, and he was pleased to see how serious they were about standing firm in their faith. I really think we could all learn from Paul's selfless attitude to the body of Christ as a whole, though. He knew that our struggle is never for ourselves alone. Christ's honor is in our hands, and Our actions will either confirm or destroy the faith of others. And so we need to pay careful attention as to how we live and what we model for others to follow. You know, as I was thinking about Paul's struggle to be a good example to others, no matter what came his way, I got to thinking about who had inspired me in my own faith walk. And a group of people suddenly came to my mind. On February 15th, 2015, the world learned of the deaths of 21 Christian men at the hands of ISIS. 20 of the men were from Egypt and one was from Ghana. All had gone to Libya in search of work and it was there that they'd been taken hostage by ISIS fighters. 
At first, the extremists apparently had not wanted to take the man from Ghana, but they eventually did after he convinced them that he also followed Christ. The Christians, dressed in orange overalls, were made to kneel on a beach where they were told that to save their lives they must renounce their faith in Jesus, but all 21 of them refused to deny their Lord. The ISIS fighters made a film of it all, and I remember as I watched the moments before their execution, reading their lips as they spoke their final words, they were all saying the name of Jesus Christ as they died. I recently learned about a man who wrote a book about their martyrdom for Christ. Apparently, he attended an event held for their families in Egypt, where he reported that their families were glad that the men had shown a steadfast faith unto the end. And how one of the mothers even said of her son, and I quote, I never prayed during his captivity that he may come free. I prayed, God, let him stay firm and he stayed firm. The faithfulness of those men calling on the name of Christ as Lord until they died powerfully affected me, and the thought has stayed with me ever since. How will I live differently as a result of their sacrifice? You see, Christ's honor is in our hands, and our actions will either encourage others to stand firm, or they will give them the excuse not to. Paul continued in verse 6, saying, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. When we believe in Jesus, we receive him as the Lord of our lives. In other words, we give Jesus full authority over us and we serve him out of love as we carry out his commands. Paul wanted believers everywhere to live their lives fully devoted to Christ and to obey him as the Lord, irrespective of what came their way. He wanted them rooted in Christ, rather like a tree that anchors itself to the soil in order to stand strong in any storm. As we depend on Jesus and strengthen our faith by being in his word, we will come to know Christ in new and deeper ways, and that will result in us overflowing with thankfulness for all that he's done in our lives. Paul is very clear about the need for us to be on the alert for false teaching, and he goes on in Colossians 2 8 to say, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. We who depend on Jesus need to be alert because false teaching is often very persuasive as it calls us to view things in a worldly way and to depend on the world's wisdom and the traditions of men rather than upon Christ. Now, at the time Paul wrote this letter, there were a lot of false teachers trying to promote their ideas, and really it is no different today. As Christians, we have to know what we believe and we have to hold to the essential truths of the gospel. And so Paul wanted to specifically address some of the errors that the Colossians were dealing with. 
as we look at this next section, I know that at first it may appear very complicated, but I want you to take heart because we'll go back into it afterwards and break it down to make it clear. But let's just read from verse 9 through 15. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. First, Paul begins to contradict the Gnostic false teachers by stating that God dwells in all of his fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is God in the flesh, and it is in Christ alone that we are brought into right relationship with the Father. Mankind has been separated from God by sin, but in Christ our debt was paid. Those of us who choose to put our faith in Jesus are brought into relationship with God again, and we are able to know the fullness of life that only he can give. Jesus is above every other power and authority, and what he has accomplished, no one can undo. Paul then went on to move away from the Gnostics' false teaching to speak into some of the things that the Judaizers were trying to promote. And you'll remember that the Judaizers were false teachers who had come from a Jewish background, and they taught that faith in Christ was not enough to save a person, and that a man had to become a Jew by being circumcised as well. They were very intent that people obey the law of Moses, but what they were doing was holding on to physical ceremonies, particularly circumcision, never realizing that Christ had fulfilled it in a spiritual sense. And in verse 11, Paul reveals that as believers in Christ, we have experienced a type of circumcision not performed by human hands, but rather performed in a spiritual sense by Christ, who has freed our hearts from the sin that used to cover them. God had said from the beginning that circumcision was an outward symbol of an inward reality and that he was more interested in men's hearts being laid bare before him. The tragic error of these Jewish false teachers was that though they were circumcised in a physical, literal sense, according to the law, they were still walking around according to their flesh. In other words, they still had no power to be free of their old sinful nature. But Paul, speaking of those who had put their faith in Christ Jesus, says 
that Christ is the one who cuts away everything of the flesh. In him, our whole self that was ruled by our old sinful fleshly desires has been put off. And in a spiritual sense, we are now free from all of that. And we've been circumcised in our hearts, just as God always wanted us to be. The tragic thing about physical rituals is that some people substitute the ritual for the reality, and apparently people had also begun to falsely trust in the ritual of baptism to save them. Scripture is very clear. Though Christ commands us to be baptized as an act of obedience to him, baptism itself does not save us. It's merely an important picture of a spiritual reality that has already taken place within our hearts. If you think both about the ritual of circumcision and the ritual of baptism, you will quickly realize that they actually symbolize similar things. Circumcision was a reminder to the Jew that he was to live for God. And baptism also signifies a new life that is no longer dominated by the flesh, but rather by the spirit. But these are both just outward physical symbols of an internal spiritual reality. You see, it's what Christ has done to change our hearts. It is the new life that he has made possible for us that is really important. And Paul goes on to say, in Christ, God forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The law of the Old Testament told people how to live, and it outlined the kind of life necessary to have a relationship with God, but it was not able to provide the power to make a person holy. All the law did was prove how much we fell short of God's standard, and it showed us how desperately we were in need of a saviour. It is very apparent that the law brings a charge of our legal indebtedness to God that stands against us and condemns us. But God in his grace took those very charges and placed them on Christ at the cross. And thus, Satan and his powers and authorities have been disarmed. Their hold over us has been broken by the cross of Christ. Jesus has set us free, and Paul wanted the believers who read his letter to live free. We're not to be burdened again by a yoke of slavery to the empty philosophies of men. As God's people, we're to be rooted in Christ, holding fast to the good news of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. In truth, my righteousness has nothing to do with my actions. My righteousness has to do with my faith. In Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, Paul put it this way, saying, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
So do you see in that text, there is a progression. We're saved by faith in Christ and salvation is a gift of God's grace. It is not because of works that we are saved because works only lead to pride and boasting about what we've done for ourselves. Now, We do do good works after we're saved, but they're done out of gratitude for what God has already done for us. In other words, our works as Christians do not make us God's children. Rather, they are done because we are God's children. Paul goes on to reference other laws the false teachers were trying to burden them with in verse 16, saying, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The Judaizers in particular judged people based on the food laws of Judaism, as well as whether or not they continued to follow the religious festivals of the Old Testament. But Paul taught that they were missing the point, because all of those Old Testament rituals had their fulfillment in Christ. For just as the law concerning circumcision pointed towards something that Christ would come to do, so too the old Jewish festivals festivals were also pictures or shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. But Paul is also talking about the Gnostics in what he says here, and he goes on in verse 18 to say, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Apparently, the false teachers at that time were calling on people to worship angels, and several of them were boasting about the things that they said God had shown them, or about the secret pieces of knowledge that they possessed. But their teaching proved that they were not truly allied with God because they were not in submission to Christ. They went into great detail about what they knew and their unspiritual minds were puffed up with pride. But in reality, they'd lost connection with Christ, who is the head over the church, who is his body on earth. Paul called on the Colossians to continue to live free of the rules of their false teaching, and he warned in verse 20, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So Paul asks an important question, since they had died, as it were, with Christ, and since Jesus had set them free from following the world's ideas on how to be saved by doing good, 
and obeying various rules. If all of that had happened, why did they keep on following the rules of the false teachers? These teachers overflowed with false humility, and they judged people as being spiritual only if they followed their rules. But the rules the false teachers insisted on as being so wise had no real power. They were, and I quote Paul, merely human commands and teachings that though they had an appearance of wisdom, could do nothing to help a person resist sin. The only power for us to live a new life free from our past slavery to sin is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much that truly we are to hold to Christ alone. Lord, it is in him that we are to be rooted and established in love, that we are to grow in our knowledge of you, overflowing with thankfulness. Lord, I pray that none of us would depend on any other thing other than Christ alone for our salvation. And where we have perhaps accepted false teaching, that you would reveal it to us and that we would continue to focus on your word and your truth. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.